Thanks, Kyle. Always good to learn new new songs, put to lyrics, unique truths to sing to one another. It's good to continue in our study of Revelation chapter 20, so I invite you to return there in your Bibles if you haven't already done so. Revelation 20, as you're making your way there, would you pray with me as we seek the Lord's help tonight? Father, we come this evening very much aware of our inadequacy to communicate these eternal truths. Lord, we ask that you would be gracious and kind, that that we would only be your mouthpiece and that you might speak in your word through us that which you would want your people to know. Lord, encourage those here who are yours and convict the lost, we pray, from this most serious passage. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 is where we find ourselves this evening, where we're going to camp out in John's prophecy of future things to come. And there aren't many things after this in terms of chronology, and so we need to slow down a bit in this last paragraph, the most sobering, as I've said, and serious and alarming passage, if you've ever read of it, the great white throne judgment, as it's often called, and just a quick a comment about the context, if you remember that last week we covered uh, the, the first 10 verses of chapter 20, uh, examining really the millennial kingdom, its nature, what that would be like, the purpose for it, that thousand-year earthly reign of Christ after the tribulation, at the end of which we saw the final judgment of Satan. Tonight, our goal is to finish this chapter with a look at the final judgment, not of Satan, but of sin. That is what we find here in these last few verses of Revelation 20, the final judgment of sin in a vision given to the Apostle John of this great white throne. And last time, we mentioned that in the the flow of John's vision... Just to remind you, the the main encouragement that we as the church ought to take away from this section, indeed this whole chapter, is that for us, that, that we would have confidence that one day God will put an end to all evil and He will do so fully and finally. That is the encouragement we draw just at a high level from this text and from this chapter. What we read of here will be the completion of God's future dealings with Satan and with sin. Both will be defeated in the end. This fallen existence then will finally give way to what we will study next time. I'm sure you're all looking forward to that. Revelation 21, called the new heavens and the new earth. You see, one day, Christian, God will make all things new. Do you look forward to that? But before that, listen, church, He must make all things right. And that is why we have this passage before us tonight. So, Did you know that one day, every evil deed will be repaid with perfect justice from on high? Do you believe that? One day, He will fulfill His promise given to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Perhaps you've quoted that to some In the past, maybe you've repeated that to yourself as you've witnessed injustice running rampant. 
sin seeming to prevail. Beloved, one day God will bring every act of sin, every unrepentant sinner to final judgment. Nothing and no one will be exempt or left out. Peter writes of that day, it's 2 Peter 3 verse 7, and calls it the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The writer of Hebrews reminds us and puts it simply, Hebrews 9 27, that it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Paul himself warned in Acts 17 31 that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It is fixed. It is coming. It is certain, and here in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we are confronted with a detailed vision of that terrifying day. This final paragraph brings us right up to the edge of the eternal state. Here we are given a glimpse of the last event will take place before God ushers in His new creation, here we find ourselves standing with the Apostle John, looking out, as it were, on the precipice of eternity. The curtain is about to close on the last act of this present age, and it is, this is not a hard passage, if you've ever read it. It's not a hard passage to understand, but it is a hard passage to swallow. It's not a difficult scene to comprehend, but it is a difficult scene to be comfortable with. So follow along with me then as I read the text for us. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead The great and the small standing before the throne, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, if you're taking notes this evening, here's your outline for tonight as we seek to walk through this vision together. We're going to encounter three sobering scenes of final judgment. Three sobering scenes. I'll just give them to you up front. Scene number one, we'll just call the lone judge, verse 11. The lone judge. Scene number two, we'll call the the lawless judged. The lawless judged, verses 12 through 13. And scene number three, the last judgment, the last judgment, verses 14 and 15. Let's walk through this together. Let's consider them in order as the text unfolds for us. Notice first the lone judge in verse 11. John writes in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence, earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. John looks, as has been his custom now, has been typical in the book of Revelation. It is a vision, so he is seeing these things. He looks, and with the words, then I saw, he records what happens next in the chronology of the last things, what will happen in the end. What he sees here is indeed sequential to the timeline of events, as we've argued. Literally, this will happen immediately after the judgment of Satan that we read about in verses 7 through 10, after the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ, before God 
brings in his new creation. That is where we are in the timeline of events. And so no sooner than John sees Satan thrown into the lake of fire does the scene abruptly shift and change. And his gaze singularly directed upon an immense and awesome vision of God as the only, the lone judge, the only sovereign righteous one seated upon his throne in his divine courtroom. This is the scene that John immediately sees. James 4 verse 12 tells us there, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, and this is the one whom John sees, seated on his throne. But notice first the, the, the sovereignty and authority of this judge, of this one. Notice the first thing that John actually sees here is a great white throne. It catches his eye, no doubt. It's very different than the thrones that he's just seen. In verse 4, in the millennial kingdom, the multiple thrones given to those resurrected saints who were delegated authority to rule and to reign with Christ in those thousand years, this is different. And it's no mystery to us by now that thrones throughout Scripture, especially in Revelation, symbolize positions of power and sovereign rule and authority But by comparison to all other thrones here, this throne, notice, is described as great. It is great. It is great in its glory. It is great in its grandeur. It is great in its immensity and its importance. Its size, you could say, matches its significance. Most likely it is great because its authority is of the highest order. This is the highest seat in the highest court in heaven. That's what John sees here. And and if you were to compare this throne to the thrones that we saw, he saw in verse 4 where judgment had to be given and, as we said, delegated to those who sat on the thrones in the millennial kingdom to reign with Christ here. However, whoever sits upon this throne has inherent and ultimate authority. It doesn't need to be given to him. It is the throne of thrones, the throne above every throne. This, to this throne belongs power. And from this throne come judgments that cannot be overturned or overruled. His throne is described as great because this is clearly God's throne. In fact, we've seen this throne before. It was first introduced to us back in Revelation chapter 4 where it was the centerpiece of worship in heaven. And out from it came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. It was majestic in glory Psalm 103 verse 19 reminds us that the the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. This is the, the sovereignty and the authority of this judge that John sees and notices first, right out of the gate. And there's no greater symbol of sovereignty and authority than the throne of God in Scripture, and here it is. Great, But notice, second, the purity of this judge. Not just the, the, the sovereignty and authority of this great judge upon this great throne, but the purity, the holiness of this judge. Notice, not only is this throne here described as great, it is, it is white. It is white for the same reason that the robes given to the martyrs and the horses ridden by Christ and the saints who return with him are white. It is white because this throne is pure. It is white because it is clean. It is white because it is holy. It is righteous. There is nothing defiling it. There are no blemishes upon this throne. It is white, which means that all the judgments, think about this, which issue forth from this throne are perfect. 
They are infallible. They are incontestable. They are incorruptible. And they are all right. Can you, can you, can you relate to that today at all? Pro- probably not. That judgments of man are always limited. They are always fallible. Not this throne. The purity of this throne is perfect, spotless. We could put it this way as Psalm 97 verse 2 does. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. All the decrees that issue forth from this throne, not only are they irreversible and unappealable, that is His sovereignty and His authority, but they are also with perfect equity and piercing accuracy. The verdicts rendered here reflect the character of this judge, of God. Psalm verse 9, verses 7 and 8 read, He has established His throne for judgment, and He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. That is this throne. There are never any false accusations leveled from this throne. Every sentence pronounced from this throne is appropriate and proportional to the offense incurred. Think about that. No punishment that ever issues from this throne can be accused of being too severe. No punishment, no consequence that ever issues from this throne can ever be accused to have been too lenient and soft. It's white, it's pure, it's righteous, it's perfectly just. It's great, it's sovereign, it's of the highest authority. So John sees the sovereignty, the authority, and the purity of this judge. But notice, notice also we need to talk about here in verse 11 the identity of this judge because not only does he see the throne, he also sees the one who sits upon this throne. Notice the identity of this judge. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and it wasn't vacant Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. John doesn't himself explicitly name this one who he sees sitting upon this great white throne. But if you survey the book of Revelation, throughout John's vision, we've probably said over and over again, or at least tried to make some case and reference, that, that it is typically God the Father who is upon the throne in John's vision. Uh, This was the case back in chapter 4 when we were first introduced to it in verses 2 and 3. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and John records there, Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Same language. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And you remember, I believe it was Danny who um, took us to the prophets there to also describe this, uh, this one as God the Father, or in other words, as Daniel 7's vision would declare him to be the Ancient of Days. You remember Daniel 7? In that parallel vision, there it is also God, the Father, who is sitting upon this throne. Verses 9 and 10 of Daniel 7, I kept looking, same language, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning river or, or burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And Daniel there records, the court sat and the books were opened. It's the same language here. This is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come to whom all of heaven gives glory and honor and thanks and praise. 
This is the one whom Isaiah saw. Isaiah 6 verse 1, the Lord Yahweh sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. But immediately you hear that and you say, uh, it is true though that elsewhere in Scripture, consider this, we are told that Christ is the one who executes and exercises judgment for the Father and that even in John 12, he refers to himself as the one whom Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, sitting upon the throne. So which is it? Is it the Father or is it the Son? And the answer is yes, as we've always said. It is likely both. Think about this. And I know it is difficult for our minds to wrap around this, but nevertheless, when you piece the data together, after all, Jesus himself said in John 5, 22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Remember that? Romans 2, verse 16, Paul writes that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men, listen, through Christ Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, is involved very much so in this moment of judgment. Not to mention uh, what Paul says um, in Acts 17.31, which we quoted earlier, but left out the last part here. Paul declares that judgment on that day will come through a man, that is Christ, whom God has appointed. And so, you put all those pieces together, this passage doesn't explicitly mention Christ or His role here, but it is perhaps safe for us still to conclude that while it is the Father who's sitting upon this throne, that the Son is also there, identified with the Father as the judge. How do we make sense of that? Don't ask me. In fact, in Revelation 3, um, verse 20, 21, Christ himself will tell the church at Laodicea, I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then later in chapter 22, verse 3, this throne is actually described as the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so I think it's safe to say we could we could just we could simply try to capture this the the identity of this one who sits upon this throne as as the 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 judge the triune judge <laughs> specifically the father judging with and through the son upon his throne but though John doesn't explicitly name this judge notice He does describe him. Notice how he does further describe or identify this one as the one from from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. That is very interesting. That's a very interesting way to describe God and his presence. The combination of earth and heaven here is a typical way for Scripture to refer to the whole created order as we know it, right? and the most famous of which is Genesis 1.1. God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And so it is the entire created order as we know it, as we see it today, as it exists. And that is what John is referring to here. And so here, the, the, the earth and heaven, or all of creation is said to have in this very moment as John watches, it, is, it, it flees the scene. All of creation, all the created order, heaven and earth, is said here to have fled away from the presence of this one who sits upon the throne. And the language is literally that of earth and heaven running away from the face of God. Now, you and I know, can you do that? Is that possible? No. But listen, John watches and poetic fashion records it as the created order as we know it flees like a fugitive from the presence of this sovereign, righteous judge. 
And as we've said already, we know from Scripture that it's, it is, it's, it's actually impossible to get away from God's presence. I mean, everywhere we go, we are Coram Deo, right? We are before His face. We are before Him. Because why? He is omnipresent. He is God. This is the one whom John sees. The inescapable one. Let alone the sovereign one. Let alone the righteous judge. We know... We're familiar with what David declared in Psalm 139, verse 7, when he asks, where can I flee from your presence? But the answer is nowhere. It's the same reality Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 23, 24. Can can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? And so, of course, then, if that is the case... Then John adds here, notice, and no place was found for them because there is no place where you can get away from God's presence. And so I I believe this is actually John's way of saying that the heavens and the earth as we know it in that day will go out of existence. They will disappear. Altogether, they they will dissolve After all, Jesus himself affirmed that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not, my judgments. Perhaps you've read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, which speaks of this very reality as well, just in a different way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth at its works will be burned up. That is what John sees here. It is, you, you watch something being burned, if you've ever watched it, it just, it goes up in flames, and then it's, and then it disintegrates before your eyes, and it seems as if it's no more. This will happen one day to all the created order, heaven and earth, Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27, or 20, 26, of old you, God, founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, but even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. And this, I believe, is confirmed then if you just fast forward to the next chapter of Revelation 21, verse 1, it begins then, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This is what happens here. This is what John sees in the moment. As soon as Satan is judged, everything goes to nothing. And here for the great white throne judgment, the cosmos as we know it today will disappear. All that will remain on that day will be the inescapable presence of God. Can you imagine what that will be like? Christian, do you, do you, do you realize? Just, just picture that for a moment. Do you realize that men and women, you know, will be there? This is the courtroom scene. In this moment, in this scene, there will be no distractions. There there will be no diversions. There will be no excuses. There will be no escape. Everywhere you turn, there will be nothing for eternity. As far as the eye can see, there will be nothing left that is familiar to those who once dwelled upon the earth. There will be No place to take cover, no place to find refuge. Truly, Hebrews 4.13 will be true here. All things will be open and laid bare in that day to the eyes with whom we have to do. 
who alone will be there, seated upon his throne, suspended against the backdrop of uncreated nothingness on the edge of eternity. This is the divine courtroom of the lone judge. Can you picture it? But while he is, he alone is judge, in this final vision, John looks again and he sees that God is, God is not alone in his courtroom, though. He alone is judge, but he's not alone in his courtroom, which brings us to the second sobering scene of final judgment. Notice verses 12 and 13, we come to the lawless judged. And I saw, John records, the dead. The great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Now, consider first with me here in this section the subjects who are assembled here to be judged. Notice, who are these who are judged at the great white throne? Four times, John identifies them as the dead. The dead. And as I argued briefly last week, I believe this is the same group referred to by John as the rest of the dead back in verse 5. Just look back to verse 5. The rest of the dead who were not raised at the time of Christ's millennial kingdom, who according to verse 6, then by implication do not have a part in the first resurrection, and therefore will not be kept and protected from the second death as those who were raised in the first resurrection are. Do you see that? This is whom John sees. This is that group he is referring to by the dead. These dead include those unbelievers in the army of the beast and the false prophet who were killed by Christ at his return in the battle of Armageddon back in chapter 19, verse 21. You remember where John records, and the rest were killed, and then that links to chapter 20, verse 5, and the rest of the dead, really you could imply who were killed as well, did not come to life in the first resurrection. So clearly this includes that pagan army, all the unbelieving masses who in the tribulation period come against God and against His anointed one. But I believe this group also includes every other unbeliever who ever lived and rejected Christ throughout redemptive history, including those who died today Apart from him. Why do I say that? Because notice verse 12. Notice what the text says. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. There wasn't a battle at sea, the battle of Armageddon. (laughs) What is John doing here? He He is wrapping his arms around all those, all who are in this category of dead unbelievers... The sea gave up the dead which are in it, and if that weren't broad enough, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Those who died at sea, uh, just to give you a bit of background, in John's day were considered most unfortunate. There, there was, uh, you know, in those, in those days, the, the culture believed that was the worst thing because if you couldn't be buried, if your remains couldn't be recovered, if they were lost at sea, you couldn't be brought back to be buried on dry land, that was bad juju, to put it in our terms today. But what John is implying here then with this term is, is that it doesn't matter. He, he is saying it won't matter in that day how or where you died. 
You, you ever ask that question? I mean, some, some of us maybe in a Christian fashion will ask that. Well, what if, what if we're cremated? And what if this happens? Or what if, you know, part of that is lost or our ashes get mixed up together with other people's? What, what's going to happen then? Never recovered the body. It doesn't matter. That is John's point here. Whether you were eaten by a fish or just drowned and lost in the vast blue abyss of the ocean, dissolved by the salt water, the kind of death that you suffered will not have made a difference. John is saying here, all will be summoned on this day. All will be summoned to this judgment. There are no exceptions. The message here of death in Hades makes a similar point. The word here for death is different than the word for the dead. The word here for death refers to the state or condition of being dead. And Hades was was really the New Testament equivalent of the, the Hebrew term sheol, which often simply referred to the place of the dead or the grave. In other words, John here then with these next two terms is simply saying that no, he's adding to that statement about the sea that doesn't matter how or where you died. He's adding to that simply no matter how long you've been dead. That doesn't matter either. No matter how long you've been in this state of death or this place of the dead, the grave, no one is too dead and gone to be missed by this judgment. By the way, we can also conclude, at least logically, I would say, that this doesn't include believers because we believe believers have returned. They've already been resurrected and they come back with Christ at His second coming. And those who've died and martyred, been martyred in the tribulation, they are raised in the first resurrection. So they're not, none of those are dead, okay? That's not this category. This category of the dead are all those who didn't know Christ, who died in a state of unbelief. And John says, all of these dead will be reconstituted and reunited with their bodies on that day and be brought to stand before this throne. Standing is the position, posture, having been raised. It's the same verb that's used actually in Revelation 5 or 6 to describe Jesus, the resurrected lamb who John saw standing, same word, between the throne and the elders in heaven. So, this is, this is language of, of resurrection. These are those who experience the second resurrection unto the second death. The purpose now for their, this resurrection and this raising, we could say, then is not like the first resurrection in verse 6. It's not for God's blessing, but rather for His judgment. John would write, or wrote, we read in John, his own, his gospel, chapter 5, he would record Jesus saying there, in verses 28 and 29, he, Jesus clearly tells us there that there are two kinds of resurrections. Remember, he said, do, do not marvel at this hour, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, it's one kind, and then those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's a second kind of resurrection. The same is prophesied in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. It's one kind, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's another kind. That is that second category is what John sees here. Here John sees the resurrection of judgment, the awakening of those who will experience disgrace and contempt. And how, do we, how do we know this, that this is a resurrection unto judgment and not blessing? Because notice the language here of what happens. In verses 12 and 13, just follow the verbs. 
All the dead who are brought to stand before the throne here in verse 12 are not raised to reign with Christ like those in verses 4 and verse 6. Instead, twice in these verses, John is very adamant and he simply repeats himself by saying, they were judged. That is not a good thing here. They were judged. And while these may want to say then, well, these dead, these unbelievers throughout all eternity who've rejected Christ will finally one day, could you imagine, open their eyes and be back in bodily form with nothing else around them standing before Him. Well, they will want to say, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sat and sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, they won't be able to because there will be no, there will be no mountains. There will be no rocks. One more thing must be said about those who are judged here. Notice John describes them, John describes them as both the great and the small. You notice that in verse 12, I saw the dead, the great, and the small. Why add that? Interesting. Beloved, everyone who does not belong to Christ, no matter how infamous or insignificant they are, will one day stand here, unprotected, before the blazing majesty of God their judge. There are no exceptions. The ground is level before this throne. Scripture tells us that God is an impartial judge. No one is too great. Listen, no one is too great to be exempted. No one is too small to be overlooked. The wealthy and the weak sinner will stand here. The Hitlers of the world and the schoolyard bullies that nobody knows about. The moral unbeliever and the serial killer that makes the news. The false teacher and the friend. Listen, status and strength won't matter on that day. No one will be lost in the shuffle. No one will slip through the cracks be forgotten. No one will be given a pass. All, take it to the bank, all who, who reject Christ, all who trust in their own righteousness, all who put off their repentance by saying, I'll come later. I'll do it later. I've got too much right now to live up. Every one of those who die in their sins, They will be here, and they will be judged. Notice that John is not just comprehensive in his description so as to catch all people. He's also, he's also very particular in his description so as to single out in that mass of unbelievers every single person. In other words, this is not like the ark two by two. Notice the end of verse 13 clarifies every one of them. Literally, it's each one. Each one of them is, is a better translation. In other words, this judgment is not a, it's, it is a big group, but it's not a group judgment. It's not a mass grave, so to speak, in that sense, a sweeping judgment. This is very particular. These people will not be judged collectively. They will be judged personally and individually, every single one of them will stand alone and give account for themselves without comparison to others, with no advocate, no one to speak on their behalf. Your husband won't be there. Your believing spouse won't be there. Your children won't be there. Your parents won't be there. Your pastors won't be there. Your elders won't be there. Your your friends who pled with you won't be there. We'll stand accountable, responsible 
alone. These are the subjects who are to be judged in that day. Every unbeliever who ever lived and died in their sin. Christian, this is hard for me to think about for myself. It is convicting, isn't it? That you go out on the street and each car that drives by, every person you would see, it could be here. This could be them. This could be you. These are the subjects who will be judged, the dead. But consider, second, the standard by which they are judged. The standard, notice verse 12, the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, first John sees books, notice here, plural opened. Not to be mistaken with the book singular here, which is opened. Let's begin with the plural. It's, it's not entirely clear what these books, plural, are, but that they are apparently the same books, plural, from which the dead are judged according to their deeds in the second half of this verse. Again, not to be confused, so you have this stack of books, plural, not to be confused with what John says is the other book. The book singular here, a bit easier to identify perhaps because it is distinguished from the rest of these books, plural, and it's also identified by John helpfully as the book of life. The book of life. This is indeed the Lamb's book of life, which has already been mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 in which are written, listen, from the foundation of the world, the names of all those who have come to Christ as Savior and belong to the kingdom of God. This is that book, the book with the names of those who have eternal life. The names of those who love the Lord Jesus. The name of those who belong to Him. The, the, name, the names of those whom he has purchased with his very own blood. This is that book. So what does John see God doing with them? Well, if, if, if in the book, the singular book of life, is written these names which belong to God, then we need to ask here also what, are the, what is written in the things in these books, plural. And the text doesn't say explicitly, but because John, John repeats here twice that these dead, notice, are judged according to their deeds, it's likely we can conclude that what is written in these books is probably the record of deeds of all those dead who are being judged. This is a catalog. This is a registry of Every offense ever incurred against God by all of these unbelievers. This is Romans 2. That in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, He will render to each person according to His deeds. That's what's recorded here. An uh, Old Testament passage, perhaps Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14, teaches this much as well. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And, and by the way, the tense of the verb here for written tells us that this will have already been done beforehand. In other words, there is no changing what has been written here. There, there will be no editing allowed in that day. You can't put in a good word with the Apostle John to have him go in, hey, flip to this page and, you know, just none of that. This will be a true and finished record of your life, the life of all of these who stand 
This judgment, this is an objective diary. This is not, listen, it's not an autobiography. Well, let's coin a new term this evening. It's a Deo biography. It's a God-written biography of your life. And the content will be untampered. It will be exhaustive. And it will be clear. The evidence will be presented, no cross-examination, no further appeal, no mitigating factors, no new uh, information to be added here. Have you ever talked to someone who says, have you, have you ever gotten into an evangelistic conversation with someone and you get to this point and you ask them this question, friend, what will you say? What will you do? When you stand before your judge, your creator. Have you ever gotten to that point? How sad it is. Have you ever heard this answer before? I'll figure it out when I get there. You'll, you'll, you'll figure it out when you get there? It will have been written. You'll have no answer. You'll have no advocate. You'll have no one. But yourself and your deeds and your miserable, filthy rags. So the the picture here is this: John sees, in, he sees in the books a record of all these sins, all the offenses ever incurred, and and next to that laid open the book of life, the testimony of those whose those whose sins have been covered. And so, you can already see what is happening here. The books will be presented. The case will be made. And the book of life will be consulted. Is there an answer for these? Because if your name is here, there is. I have a perfect plea The righteous life of Christ, his robes for mine. But sadly, that will not be the case for these who stand at this judgment. You see, in that day, every unbeliever will actually be judged on the basis of their own righteousness. How scary is that? You know, I know people who who want that right now. They will not want that at that day. Deeds, of course, here include our words, our thoughts, and our motives, says the rest of Scripture. So don't think of this as just actions only. Every inclination of the heart, every, every sinful desire, every thought, every word, careless word spoken. You know, we heard Kerry say recently, maybe, maybe even this past Sunday, that every religion outside of biblical Christianity is a system of works. Yeah, that was Sunday. Philippians chapter 3, you remember? You know, all of those works will be judged here. And they'll be found wanting, woefully wanting. Let me remind you of James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The Bible is clear, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's ledger will be clean in that day. The only chance you will have is if your name is found written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. It's your only chance. Remember David cried out in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? Here, the iniquities have been marked. These will stand, and they will fall. You know, some have wondered, just as a side note, if this means the language here... um, could could possibly mean that we are um, 
saved by our deeds? If we're judged by our deeds, I mean, are we saved also then in some way by works? And the answer to that, of course, is obviously no. Uh, this, This text doesn't teach that we're saved by works, but it does, there is a difference. It does indicate that we're judged and condemned by our works. In other words, we're saved only because by the grace of God our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. But anyone whose names are not found in that book, verse 15, will be judged according to their deeds. They will be judged according to their deeds. That's how that works. Christians, however we, we, we will be judged according to Christ's deeds and His is a perfect righteousness that has been credited to our account. The same cannot be said of the dead here. They will be judged by the standard of their own conduct, and it will not be enough. These these are the subjects of, these are the lawless who are judged. Again, Christian people you know will be here. Think about that. People you interact with on a daily basis will one day stand here. Will your neighbors be there? Your barber be there? Will your Friend be there, family, teachers, students. We've seen the lone judge, we've seen the lawless judged. Notice finally verses 14 and 15, the last judgment. Last judgment, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this last judgment is, has sort of two parts to it. We could say it, it is here seen as final. There's a finality to it, verse 14, and there's also eternality to it. It's eternal. This last judgment is final, and it is eternal. Notice verse 14, the finality of it. I love verse 14. (laughs) And death, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Why why a finality to this? What what a definitive end, listen, to the problem of sin. Think Think about what is happening here. Read verse 14 and rejoice, Christian. Death will be no more. Death will be gone. Death will be dealt with. Death will be destroyed. What a definite end. What a final end to the problem of sin. For the wages of sin is death. But here and here on into chapter 21, death is cast into the lake of fire. There's no need for death anymore. It will have run out of time. It will become unemployed. Sin will have been fully and finally defeated. And this is it. Death needs not hold anyone any longer. After this verse... And no more is there need for Hades either. If, if, if Hades is the holding place or the grave right, for the dead, because no one will be there. God will have emptied that place. It'll be vacant. And no one's going to go there anymore either. No squatters. No more rent to pay. No one will die anymore in the eternal state. Beloved, this is the reality that John records. And it's what Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, when he says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then, oh, I can't wait for chapter 21. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 28 says, Then when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That comes once death is done. And here death is done. There's a finality to this judgment. This is the moment that Paul writes about when he says death is swallowed up in victory. But secondly, notice, we'll finish here very quickly, eternality of this final judgment. Notice verse 15, all those, all those who refused to find refuge and salvation in the Lamb, Christ Jesus, John says he sees thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you just read ahead to chapter 21, verse 8, John would describe them there as the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns, listen to the language, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, many, many unbelievers today often think of hell as one big party they're going to have with all of their friends. You ever heard that before? That is not what's going to happen. Hell is an unquenchable fire, Matthew 3, verse 12. It is outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It is eternal flame. It is forever and ever because God's glory is forever and ever. Here, this judgment is described as a second and deeper death, we could say, where the torment and punishment of the wicked along with Satan and the beast and the false prophet will last for eternity. This is what will happen the great white throne judgment. What a stirring account, isn't it? It's a sobering account. Just some implications here for you, though. If you're a Christian, listen, if you're a believer, you, you should be, just to remember, just back out of this context, right? Remember, why do we have this here, chapter 20? This, this should encourage you and in, in one sense, as you look out upon this world and see all the evil and the sin that happens that goes unanswered. Beloved, it will, it will not ultimately end like that. Justice will prevail. Every ill motive, every horrendous act Every sin, every lawless deed, every kidnapping, every murder, every abortion, every lie, every slanderous accusation that has been thrown your way, it will be answered. This, this chapter is where every cry for justice ends where every evil deed will be recompensed. So Christian, take comfort in that. Be encouraged by that. Trust the Lord. Trust His promises. And if you're a Christian, you, you should also be thankful. You, you stand at this and you look into this picture. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to face this judgment? You don't. You're not there. You're not going to be there. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's now no condemnation for you. You're not judged. But if you're a Christian, then you also ought to think, as we've been saying throughout this, this time, 
do you do you do you love those who will potentially be here? This ought to give us a heart for the lost. Christian, you know people. You you have faces who will stand before the throne in this way. Give them Christ. Offer to them the hope of eternal life that they might flee from the wrath to come. And obviously tonight, listen, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ this evening, then you will be here, be warned. You will be here and you will answer and your, an- your only answer will be guilty. Your righteousness is not enough. You need a Savior. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very difficult text. We, we know that not everything you give to us is is easy easy to gaze at, Father, would, but we do pray this truth would lay heavy on our hearts for those of us who know you, that we might seek to dissuade others from coming here. And Lord, may this lay heavy on our hearts if we don't know Christ. Lord, would you save Would you be merciful? Would you cause those now to flee to the only refuge that they will have in that day? To your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.